Temporary was produced on the lands of the Bijigal, Gadigal, Nungar, Warujiri, and Karuna peoples whose sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and those who are yet to emerge. I'm Sison Kim Simang, and this is Temporary. When you leave your home in search of safety, you say goodbye to your country, your culture, and your community. And when you arrive in Australia as an asylum seeker, you enter a system that is built on isolation. Many refugees in the legacy caseload haven't seen the ones they love, their sons, their daughters, their moms, their dads, their grandparents, for years. This enforced and indefinite separation from one's family and loved ones is built into Australia's asylum policy. In Iran, basically everything you do is dangerous. The way I dressed when I went out was dangerous. So we had satellites in our house, which was dangerous. We drank, we played games that were considered gambling, we, you know, all sorts of life that's considered normal here. This is Alahe. I'm from Iran. I'm originally from Ahwaz, Iran, but I live mostly in Karaj and Tehran. She's like a lot of feminists I know. She's bold and she's funny and she's really smart. Uh, my brother and I moved to Karaj, which is this small, relatively small city near Tehran to live with our grandmother. In her home, Elahi is surrounded by strong women, her mother and her grandmother especially. Uh, my mother would be there Often, my father would come and visit us, but we mostly lived with my grandmother. While Elahi was growing up, Iran was under extreme social and political repression. It began with the demand for democracy, but ended with the world's first Islamic republic. But Elahi was never one to sit on the sidelines. She started doing everything she could to push back against the conservative government and to help those who couldn't push back themselves. So yes, when I started, I knew that this wasn't something that the government and the regime would like people to do. They're shouting Magba Diktator, death to the dictator. We're just, you know, helping people, we're giving them information. And so when Elahi became involved in activism, it was inevitable that there were going to be serious consequences. We didn't really even tell our own family. They knew we were doing things, but we wouldn't give them details or anything because, you know, we didn't, we didn't want to unnecessarily put them in potential danger. And we would be cautious. Elahi was living under police suspicion for some time. If he, if we needed to like transfer stuff, information, disks, I don't know, it's, um, USB thingies, whatever, we'd be careful, but not like, super mafia gangster careful. They broke into her house, looking for something to implicate her. People had gone to his house and um, got his um, computer and everything. Went to his room, taking his stuff out. She knew she wasn't safe, and she had to leave in a hurry. They say they've been forced to leave Iran because of religious or political persecution. Refugee advocates say it's the tip of the iceberg, with more and more people in limbo as refugee bids are refused and interim visas... I just said a normal goodbye, like when you go on a trip to... My brother was home, my mum was home, and my grandmother was happened to be at our place. So I just, like, hurriedly say but to them, like a kind of worried kind of goodbye, but not a kind of goodbye that I'm never, not going to see you in six years kind of goodbye. 
Yeah, that was that. She got her stuff and she left. I didn't think about what was happening or my emotions. I just had this survival mode. And then later on, yes, when I thought about it, I was like, did I just live a novel or a movie or something? She traveled through several countries before embarking on a now very familiar journey, getting on a boat and coming to Australia. Then I remember waking up from the sun in my face and we were on the boat for two and a half days. I was semi-unconscious the whole way because I got seasick like nothing. So yeah, for the whole two and a half days, I think I had some lemon and some biscuit crumbs. There was some food, but I couldn't eat. Eventually, their boat was found by the Australian Navy. They kind of like jumped on a boat in a very unnecessarily dramatic manner, like pointing guns at us and shouting and stuff. Elahe had been at sea for days, and when she landed on Christmas Island, the first thing she did was call her family. Yeah, I called my brother and he said, can you please, please call mom because she's going to think that I'm lying to her. And I said, no, sorry, they don't allow me. I'll call her in a few days. Yeah, later my mom told me that um, my mom and my grandma would call my aunt who lives in America overnight and then they would basically cry for an hour and hang up on them the next day um, until they until they realized that we had we were safe. After some time on Christmas Island, Elahi's starting to talk to other people, and the enormity of what she's just undertaken, this massive journey across the ocean, starts to sink in. There was this especially super nice middle-aged woman who I used to, like, sit and talk to every night about stuff. And then one night she was super sad, and I was like, what happened? And she was like, we, we just came from the shore, and the, this boat sank, and there were bodies. And I said, you mean boat sink? And she was just looking at me, and I said, I had no idea. I thought this was safe. Elahe had been moving so quickly that she hadn't realized that she was in any danger at all. I just I realized that a week ago I could have died very, very easily. And yeah, I was crying, and she was like, um, it's okay, you're safe. But it was a really... It was too much to comprehend. In the detention center, life settles into this strange sort of routine. Yeah, they would have like meetings for us with interpreters and everything every now and then, basically repeating the same stuff over and over and over and over again. Threatening, I don't know, stuff like, don't get your hopes up, you may never see Australia, blah, blah, blah. Batches of people are called up according to what boat they arrived on. Every week they would announce the numbers of the people who were getting transferred. They're no longer really people, they're these numbers. GOE 031. Eventually, her number is called. Alahi avoids Manas and Nauru. Instead, she was told she was going to be moved to mainland Australia to live on a bridging visa while she waited for her claims to be heard. And we, there was this super tiny airplane. So Lahi gets on this tiny little airplane and she heads to the mainland. They asked us, like, where, did you wanna, where do you want to go? We said we want to go to Sydney, but they sent us to Paris anyway. She looks below her and she sees scrub and bush. It was the first time in my life that I saw um, red soil. 
thought it would be a lot greener than it actually is. I, th- I thought it would be all like Queenslandy. She looks down, and just as they land, there's a kangaroo bouncing around. <laughs> like, if I see that in a movie, I'd be like, oh, come on, that's so cliche. <laughs> but it actually happened. So Elahi finds herself living in Australia with very little money and very little to do. After a few weeks of settling, she gets bored. I have not read (laughs) as many books or watched as many movies in my whole life as I did in that year. Like others we've heard from, Elahi is not allowed to work. She's not allowed to study. The first year we weren't allowed anything. Not study, not work. She's also incredibly broke. For the first time in my life, I was away from everything and didn't have anyone, didn't have any support, didn't have any money. We didn't even have a bed. We didn't have a fridge. We had this one pot that we, because our money was just about enough to just pay for rent. And then sometime near the end of the two weeks, we would even run out or out of money for, to buy food. Her first year in Australia was difficult. Elahi has not worked. She's not been able to study and she's barely making ends meet. And then, at the end of it all, she gets some news. So I got pregnant, and we were like, yep, this can't go on. If she was lonely before, she is bereft now. In Iran, as in many parts of the world, being pregnant is a time of real celebration. You get spoiled, you get fed, you are the center of everybody's attention. People worry about you. It's all very dramatic in the most beautiful way. And Elahi doesn't have any of that was pregnant, hormonal, emotional, you know how, like, especially in my culture, when you get pregnant is a time that everybody takes care of you. And your mom, your even, like, aunts, relatives, grandma, everyone just spoils you. She can't even tell her mom or her grandma that she's pregnant. It's too hard to hear them cry. I lost a lot of weight because I couldn't eat. It's a very difficult pregnancy. Like, we didn't even have enough money to talk to our families that much because I had to call them on the phone. We didn't have internet that much or anything. When my son was born, again, at first it was really hard because, well, just a first-time mother with no help. Elahi names her baby Ben, and he's a gorgeous, gorgeous boy. First thing was, you know, when there is a new baby, there is a lot of new expenses, and we're still on that next-to-nothing payment. There's no family support package. There's no baby bundle. There's nothing. Despite the circumstances, Elahi works really hard to give Ben a normal childhood. But because she's still on bridging visas, life is anything but normal. There was this really, really, really absurd thing that happened, which was that every year, because our visas would get We get new visas every year. Every time her visa is about to expire, Elahi has to go to the immigration office in the city. She brings Ben with her. I had to go there and they would take me to this room and I would have to just sit there with my son for, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour. The immigration officials essentially have to quote unquote detain the baby so that he has the same visa status as his mom. And then they would bring some documents and I would sign them and they would give my son's visa. And when I asked why, they said something in lines of 
because your son has never been in detention and he was born here, but in order to get this visa, you need to have been in detention. So he needs to be here technically so we can give him a visa. Under Australian immigration law, this child who's born in Australia is regarded as an illegal maritime arrival. This is Ben Doherty. He's a reporter for The Guardian who's been helping us out during this podcast. So Ben, why is this little kid who was born in Australia subject to this kind of detention? So because his mother arrived in this country by boat and mandatory detention applies to everybody who arrived by boat, he has to be detained. Every time it would be a different person, but they would be like, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, it's just something <laughs> we have to do. It's a legal pantomime. It's this game that everybody plays along with and everybody knows is ridiculous, but the law says it has to happen, that this child has to be detained because Allahi has been classified as an illegal maritime arrival, so her son must be an illegal maritime arrival, a boat he never got on at a time he didn't exist. And so he must be detained because mandatory detention means everybody's detained, even children who were born in Australia. They play this crazy game for years. And during this time, Elahe and Ben settle in and they start building a home in Adelaide. They start living their life. Ben takes his first steps. He gets his first little teeth. He learns how to walk. And even though Elahi misses her family back in Iran, little by little, her and Ben start to feel Australian. My name is Ben. <laughs> okay. Do you like Adelaide? Yes. It's a very beautiful place. You know, what places do you like to go? I like to go to the museum. Yes. Actually, basically not the museum. <laughs> yes, we love the museum. What else? Um, Art gallery. Art gallery. You like the French festival? French festival. <laughs> Where else? Um, that's it. And that's it. Bye bye. I will like to see you one day. <laughs> you might think that a child born in Australia would have some right to stay in Australia, even rights to citizenship or at least residency, but through careful legal manipulation, these children are excised from really ever having any right to be in Australia. And this is no accident. Nowhere children like Ben are a deliberate creation of Australia's asylum policy. They were born in Australia, but the government makes it very difficult for them to ever become Australian. Okay, so the government says that they have a reason for doing this, that they're not detaining Ben and preventing him from being permanent just because they're trying to be cruel, right? Temporary protection visas are claimed to be a deterrent to boat arrivals, but the evidence shows the opposite is true. These visas have actually led to more people getting on boats so that families can be reunited. They've led to more women and children boarding boats seeking safety. And you can see how this contradicts the government's own policies, which they say are designed to stop boats, to prevent people smugglers and to save lives. What ends up happening is this policy just makes it harder and harder on asylum seekers and refugees. The uncertainty of temporary protection visas on children's wellbeing is enormous. The uncertainty of not knowing what their future will be like, whether they can go to school, whether they can stay in this country is hugely debilitating. Basically, every time I would talk to my mom on the phone, she would ask, 
any news about the visa, I'd be like, mom, I swear, if there's news, I'll tell you. You don't need to ask every goddamn time. But finally, finally, Elahe gets her visa and has some good news to tell everyone back home. When I called her, my mom, like, she, she, her reaction was kind of like my reaction. She was like, oh my God, are, are you, you're, you're lying. <laughs> and then she was, yeah, she was so happy because, well, one, because, well, she was worried about our situation here. But I think at, from her point of view, mainly because um, she knew that, that this would mean that we could actually meet finally after six years. It's not the best case scenario because what she needs is permanent protection, but it gives her a little bit of respite. Because anything is better than being in a limbo. This particular temporary protection visa, it's called the Safe Haven Enterprise Visa, or the SHEV. It allows Elahe to ask for permission from the Home Affairs Minister to visit her family in a third country. When I got my visa, I was so happy, and he was happy because I was happy. And I was like, Mom, what happened? And I paused for a second. I was like, how do I explain to you? So I just said, we can go see Grandma. And he understood that, so he got really excited about that. When you apply, you need a compassionate or compelling reason to be able to visit your relatives. And in Elahi's case, it's really clear her grandma is sick. I grew up with my grandmother. And she is 70-something years old now. People in Iran don't live as long as people do here usually. And my grandmother was just diagnosed with cancer, bowel cancer. And I'm not sure if I'm going to see her before she dies. Elahi puts in her application as soon as she can. If she's allowed to see her sick grandma... Then finally, after all these years, Elahi can also introduce Ben, not just to her family, but to his culture. It's not, it's not going very well. I kind of thought that I, I was done dealing with immigration and their nonsense. After waiting and waiting and waiting, the minister comes back. The answer is no. Yeah, they rejected it, basically. The way they did it is they sent an email saying, we reject your application because we don't think your reasons are compassionate and you haven't provided enough documents. Like the long line of women who precede her, Elahe is pretty fierce. So this news dampens her spirits, but there's no way that she's just going to stop. It's not an option. She is going to apply again. She needs to see her family and she has to find a way to connect her son to her grandma who raised her and to the community that she loves so much. We're going to apply again, so hopefully... This time it's going to be okay. We first spoke to Elahe way back in October 2019. But when you're living on a temporary protection visa, there's no timeline or transparency. After she was found to be a refugee, Elahe was still at the mercy of the government. She still couldn't do something that most of us take for granted, which was to see the people who are most important to her. So she once again applied to see her family on compassionate grounds, hoping that the woman who had raised her, her grandmother, would get to meet her Australian-born son just once before she passed away. When we called Elahe back to check in earlier this year, she had good news to tell us. Hi, it's Elahe. Yeah, hi. The government had given her permission to see her family in a third country. So Elahe and Ben packed their bags and headed to Georgia. 
when we got there, it was just absolutely a dream. Uh, my son is, as I've said before, my son is um, 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 turning six now. He'd never met my family, and I hadn't seen them for seven years. But just from the first minute, it felt like it felt like I had just left them for three months. Oh. And with everything was just, and my son was like he'd known them all his life, and he was just so close to them from the first moment and everything was so natural and beautiful so there was a bunch of us That's fantastic. <laughs> it was a whole family reunion so my two cousins <laughs> one of their partners my aunt my grandma and my mom my brother and it was amazing <laughs> noisy lots of food yes yes um the, we, tra- we got to try some uh, georgian food too but mostly they had just brought everything with them from iran and um, they cooked for like, all sorts of Iranian foods that uh, we love for us. And yeah, um, it was just amazing. And so was Ben totally spoiled? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> no, he's, he's not like that. He's a good kid. Like when we came back, it wasn't like that. He was just, he went through this phase, which was normal, which was like, he was used to having someone's attention on him. 24/7. So for a few days, he was a little bit like, "What's happening now?" But then he was, but yeah, over there, just um, everyone was constantly fussing over him and playing with him. And he was especially, he had this beautiful connection with my brother, and they were just—he's crazy about him. And they still talk video chat on my phone every weekend. Very sweet. So it was the trip of a lifetime. Yes, it really, really was. It was just really a dream. Part of what makes this reunion so special for Elahe is that when she left Iran in those dangerous minutes, she collected her stuff and she ran, and she hardly had the chance to say goodbye. She had no idea if she would ever see her family again. While Elahe is on a temporary protection visa, she will never be able to sponsor her family to come to Australia. And so she will be at the mercy of the government to allow her to see them in a third country, just like she did this time with Georgia. And because of this, Elahe and Ben are essentially separated from their family indefinitely. I love it here. I'm glad I'm here. But coming here wasn't worth this. I wouldn't choose this life at the expense of not seeing my family for so long if I had the choice. Temporary is hosted by me, Sasankim Simang, and produced by Kara Jensen McKinnon and Miles Herbert, with editorial support from Lauren Martin and Miles Martignoni. Original music composed by Lama Zaharia, mixed and mastered by Ryan Pemberton, with series artwork by Matt Wynn. Temporary is a project from the UNSW Center for Ideas and Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, co-produced with Guardian Australia and inspired by the book Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs by Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong. The podcast is accompanied by a digital storytelling project which further explores the lives of the people interviewed in this series and is linked in the show notes. 
If this story has raised any issues for you, please know that help is available. Contact Lifeline on 131114.